0: Here's a quick challenge. Which opera features a courtesan who turns into a saint, a grueling journey through a desert, and one of the most famous violin solos of all time? Today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, The Answer, Massenet's Thais.
1: The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org.
0: This season at the Met, soprano Eileen Perez sings the title role of Massenet's Thais. I'm Naomi Baratera, and today, lecturer Geoffrey Langford delves into the famous French opera based on a novel by Anatole France about a monk desperate to help the most seductive courtesan in Alexandria find religion. <laughs>
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back here again. It's always a pleasure to be asked to come and talk to the audiences at the Met. So we're talking about Thais tonight, Jules Massenet. Um He lived from 1842 to 1912 and was active in Parisian opera houses around the turn of the century, at the same time that Strauss was active in Germany and Puccini ruled the boards in Italy. These were the three most famous and most successful composers of opera at the turn of the century. Although all three had huge careers, only Strauss with his Salome and Elektra really stepped into the world of musical modernism. Massonet and Puccini, for their part, chose to write operas that depended largely on an older 19th century operatic tradition that they were able to tweak with a few elements of the Wagnerian avant-garde in order to seem more modern. This, of course, is usually just fine with most opera goers today, who find the operas of Massenet to be comfortable and familiar. But over the years, Massonet's popularity has actually diminished, and his stature in the history of opera has shrunk, leaving really only Verter to stand pretty much alone in the current repertoire of most opera houses. Now, part of Massonet's problem was that he was French. And no one has ever really taken French opera very seriously. And I say this, by the way, as someone who has himself devoted his entire career to French opera, to Berlioz in particular, and the whole French operatic tradition. So it's not that I'm prejudiced. I'm just being honest here. To this day, the number of French operas in the repertoire of the Met is far less than the number of German and Italian operas that they regularly stage. The academic view of French opera has long been that it was created for a particular conservative audience in Paris, that viewed opera as a nice form of after dinner entertainment rather than as any kind of high art form. So the general assessment of Massenet's operas has long been that they suffer from a lack of artistic ambition stemming from the nature of the audience for which they were created. Indeed, Massenet's own memoirs and letters show him to be very much a practical man of the theater, keenly aware of how to please his audience. Having said that, however, I must say that I think Massenet's operatic reputation has gotten a bit of a bad rep over the years. His best and most popular operas are probably Manon, which was 1884, and Werther, which was 1892, both of which are actually insightful pieces of music drama that also contain a lot of very attractive music. And in these works, he is at least the equal of both Puccini and Strauss. In his own day, Massonet was known as the Fille de Gounod. Uh, and I have never understood why Fille instead of Fille, since Massonet was not a girl. So I don't get that. Um, but beyond that, he was known as the Fille de Gounod, the daughter of Gounod, partly because Gounod was the greatest French opera f- composer before him, and partly because Massonet seems to have accepted Gounod's idea of opera as a collection of attractive lyrical pieces. This connection to Gounod has, for years, I think, obscured the true merits and innovations of Massenet. If you look at an opera like Thais, written in 1894, you find a work that is actually a beautiful balance of techniques borrowed from Wagner and those that one could find in the operas of Gounod. In fact, Massenet is at least as much the Fia de Gounod as he is, I mean, of Wagner as he is of Gounod. He's both. But it's also important to recognize that while Wagner was widely influential in France in the late 19th century, this influence of Wagner was not universally applauded. Debussy, especially, decried the rush to imitate Wagner among his French colleagues and loudly condemned Wagner's style as one that threatened to suck the very essence of the French style out of opera at the end of the 19th century. Massenet obviously disagreed. Before we get to the music of Thais, I want to mention a few important points about the drama itself. This work was adapted from a novel by Anatole France, written in 1890. The story is based on a factual recounting of the life of an Egyptian courtesan, Taiz, who was born into a respectable, low-class Greek family, actually, in the fourth century, but was forced at an early age into prostitution as a means of survival because her family had no money. But this important fact is only discovered in reading the novel on which the opera is based. From Massenet's telling of the story, we know nothing of Thais's background. The opera does tell us a little more about the other half of the dramatic interaction in this story, which of course is provided by the monk Anateyal. We learn in some of his arias that he was born into wealth, just the opposite of Thais, but rejected that life to become a monk, whose primary goal in life now seems to be to rescue Thais from her life of sin. And if you think this opera, this opera plot sounds familiar, like you've seen it before in Manon or someplace else, you're right. <laughs> exactly. We'll come back to that later. The understanding of the main characters' backgrounds is critical because it allows us to understand that each of them has become transformed through external pressures into someone that they were originally not. This in turn allows us to understand the transformation that takes place in each of them as the opera progresses. Thais accepts God and gives up her life of sin and luxury um, to reacquire the life of simple poverty. And Anatayel, for his part, despite being a man of God, accepts the power of physical attraction and succumbs to the seductive attractions of Thais uh, and the corporal world into which he had been originally born. In the operas of Massenet, we can see the influence of Wagner in two specific areas. The first is in the vast expansion of the orchestra, and you'll see this tonight if you go to the opera and you look at the pit. It's full. The second is the adoption of a new semi-melodic style of singing. Now, the growth of the orchestra can be traced back way before Wagner to at least the symphonies and large choral works of another famous Frenchman, Hector Berlioz. The inclusion of unusual instruments in the orchestra is one of the hallmarks of his famous symphonie fantastique, which was copied by Wagner as a way to increase the color and power of the orchestra in his operas. Wagner, of course, never paid any thanks to Berlioz for all the stuff he stole from Berlioz, but that's Wagner. As for the new semi-melodic style of writing, which is very important, this too is indebted to Wagner who went out of his way to eliminate arias, duets, ensembles, and choruses from opera, all those things that we call the set pieces. Um, He thought these things were too tuneful, too song-like, too much independent songs. Uh, For him, their song-like quality was not compatible with the depiction of real dramatic music, or real drama through music, perhaps is a better way to say it. So Wagner adopted this new vocal melody that was something like sung speech. He, in fact, called it sprechgesang, rather than writing tuneful arias and things like that. This new vocal style is immediately apparent as an influence on Massenet. In my first video clip, which I'm going to play you in just a moment here, I want you to notice how the beginning of Thais, which is an orchestral introduction, the music of that orchestral introduction simply continues as the curtain goes up and the chorus of monks start singing. They are literally singing over top of the instrumental music that you find um, in the very introduction. And they are not singing anything interesting at all. And that is to say there are no tunes going on here. In other words, the vocal parts are simply superimposed over the instrumental music of the introduction, and the vocal parts have no real personality of their own. Um, In Italian opera, this kind of vocal writing is actually called arioso, um, and Puccini does use it as well. In Wagner, he calls it Sprechgesang. In French opera, it's sometimes known just as speech melody. So let's look at the first track. This is the opening of Act One. The curtain goes up, the orchestra is playing its introduction, and then the monks start singing over top of that with this kind of speech-like singing. So that's the instrumental tune you have to keep in your mind. Following this comes a little solo section for the chief monk, whose name is Palemon, and he speaks to the brothers um, in the same kind of non-melodic singing, this sort of speech song borrowed from Wagner. Here, you've got a bunch of irregular phrases that result in no memorable tune whatsoever. So I'm just going to let this run just a little bit further while you listen to what he sings. I don't want to get too technical in my analysis of this, but I think it's important to realize. You see, opera librettos had always been poetry, that is, written in lines of symmetrical numbers of syllables with a rhyme scheme and a poetic meter. If you look at that handout I passed out here, example two is a good example of what I'm talking about a simple bit of poetry from uh, the American vernacular. Um, You notice how The lines are eight syllables, six syllables, eight syllables, six syllables. There's a kind of a pattern there, and there is an iambic uh, pattern to it. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for mount, etc., etc. All right? Um, And it's this regularity of structure in poetry that allows arias to assume a regularity. So for every line that is similar, you can write a similar kind of melodic idea. The libretto for Thais, on the other hand, is the first that I've ever found, by the way. I always hate to say the first because somebody's going to raise their hand and prove me wrong. But I think it is the first written in prose, not poetry. And consequently, there is an irregularity of line lengths which destroys the usual symmetry of the melodic construction that you would see in an earlier opera. Furthermore, prose has no meter. It's completely irregular. And so it does not lend itself to repeating melodic fragments uh, of the kind you might find in Verdi. I think uh, on my example sheet there, I've got a Verdi aria, Caro Nome. If you know how Caro Nome goes, you know that the poetry here, which is all seven syllable lines, Caro Nome qu'il mio cor, festi primo palpitar, e fin l'ultimo sospir, Caro Nome tuo sarà. It's got the same poetic scheme the whole way through. And as a result, the melodic structure is parallel. Et cetera, et cetera, and don't ask me to sing anymore. That's enough. OK. So as I mentioned before, French composers had begun to accept Wagner's idea that individual arias, duets, and ensembles were the unrealistic trappings of an outdated style of music drama. This is why there's so little audience applause that interrupts a performance of a Wagner opera. Because the places where you usually applaud in an opera are at the end of the big musical numbers, the arias, the duets, or whatever. And since there are no arias and duets and other set pieces with distinct endings in Wagner's opera, there's no place to applaud. There's no place for the audience to jump in. So everybody sits politely and listens to hours and hours of Wagner running by. Now, the funny thing about my uh, Massenet's Thais is that, unlike Wagner, there are several points where the music does come to a full close. But curiously enough, audiences seem never to know whether they should applaud at these points or not. And what you're listening to here, what you're watching, is an older Metropolitan Opera production with Thomas Hampson and uh, Renee Fleming. Um, And you're going to see exactly what I'm talking about now this i take this confusion about the audience you know not knowing when to applaud um, as a sign that massenet has fooled his audience into thinking that this is a wagnerian opera where applause is frowned upon when in fact this opera is deeply indebted to the old fashioned french 19th century operatic tradition in which there are lots of places to applaud so it's safe to say then that massenet was not completely subject to the Wagnerian fear of arias and duets and choruses um, because there are several of these actually in the opera, several of these these solos. And I'm going to show you the first one, first aria, quote unquote, that I'm talking about. And this is Anatayel's first big aria. And I think this is also in your handout. This is example one. Uh, He comes on and he sings these lines. Notice the lines are seven syllables, ten syllables, eight syllables, nine syllables, 12 syllables. There isn't a single line that's the same length. And the poetic structure, hélas, enfant encore, avant que mon coeur de la grâce ait parlé. Je l'ai connu, je l'ai connu. It's all different. Every line has a different pattern of accents and unaccents. And that causes the composer to write individualized different lines for every line of text. And because the pattern of stresses is different, the stress of the music is going to be different, and no two lines are the same. So let's Go to the next musical example. This is Thomas Hampson now singing this opening aria i I frequently also read uh, another Wagnerism in Massenet's operas is said to be the uh, use of leitmotifs. Uh, This, of course, is a reference to Wagner's use of short little melodic snippets to identify specific characters and ideas in his operas. These little melodic bits in Wagner then become the musical material out of which he builds large stretches of orchestral accompaniment for the voices in a kind of symphonic fashion, which is why Wagner's operas are usually referred to as symphonic opera. Uh, But this theory uh, is something that I really want to object to, the whole idea that Massonet has stolen the leitmotif technique. Massonet does indeed repeat melodic ideas or themes, but he does not do so as the way Wagner does. That is, he does not do so to build large extended sections of symphonic music. Massonet uses his repeated melodic ideas as a part of a technique that we usually call thematic recall, this involves repeating a theme from earlier in the opera to remind listeners of a parallel dramatic situation, much as in Verdi for instance, take Otello of Verdi. You know, at the end of the first act of Otello there's a wonderful love duet between Desdemona and Otello and there's a moment in there where they kiss and the music that goes with that is known as the baccio theme, the kiss theme. That theme comes back in the last act when he sneaks into her bedroom ready to murder her and as he's leans over her with his pillow, the pillow in his hand, ready to snuff out his, her life. Before he does, he leans down and he kisses her. And what does he kiss her to? The kiss motif from the first act. And what you're supposed to get from this is a sort of a new take on the whole idea of love. This is one love at the beginning, and this is the love death at the end. Um, but it's all some kind of love. All right, so that's the way this whole thematic recall thing works. Um, Massonet actually does the same sort of thing. Um, To illustrate this technique in Thais, I want to show you the music that accompanies Anatayel's first dream vision uh, that follows the big solo that we just heard. This is where he has a dream vision of Thais. And in the middle of the orchestral interlude here is a theme. He doesn't sing, he just dreams. And in the middle of this is a theme that is going to reappear later in the opera in a big aria that Thais sings. So, and I think I wrote it out on the um, on the second page of your handout. Um, oh, there's no second page of your handout. Oh, good, another excuse for me to sing. <laughs> the theme you're listening for is the one that goes di da di da di da di da dum. So you'll hear it here. Let's listen to this next clip. This is Anatayel's vision of Thais. Not that. Right here, this theme. the moment where Anatayel awakes from that dream vision you just saw, he decides that his mission must be to go to Alexandria to convert Thais uh, to Christianity. Um, and as he leaves, he moves off stage singing as he goes, and his voice becomes fainter and fainter and more distant while the choir of monks on stage urge him on his way. This is actually a favorite technique in French grand opera from earlier in the century. You see it in Berlioz, you see it in um, Meyerbeer, other French grand operas, where it's used actually to project a sort of three-dimensional sense of the stage. Um, the stage has now got near and far in it as well. In Act I of Thais, we see exactly this kind of thing uh, at the end of this opening scene. So let's look at this end of the scene here. Okay, so there you have a typically French technique, operatic technique, invented by composers far earlier in the century and kept around um, right to the end of the century with Massenet. Now, another moment in this opera that mixes tradition with modernism is the beginning of scene two in the home of Anathayel's old friend Nicias. Anathayel has come to his friend's home uh, to get help locating Thais, He sings an aria here, uh, that is Anna that combines several different vocal techniques into one large solo. And it opens in a kind of symphonic Wagnerian fashion, with the orchestra repeating the theme that that they had played at the beginning before the curtain goes up. So again, we've got a kind of orchestral introduction, and the music of that introduction is then kept as the background for the beginning of this aria. So, um, I'm just going to play you that part first, the Wagnerian part. So, here's the beginning of this scene. This eventually leads to Anathayal comes on and starts singing his aria. So we're going to skip ahead just a couple of minutes. And the orchestra is still playing ba ba da da da
1: da Xandria, où je suis né dans le bégé, et bien, où je respiré affreux par
2: Important orchestra part.
1: But why is there a
2: tune at the end? Because suddenly the poetry, not the poetry, the prose, has become equal length lines uh, that result in equal length melodic phrases. And you'll hear what I'm talking about. of that aria are clearly they've got repeating lines of text and repeating melodies and it sounds like a tune so this is really nice okay now other connections to traditional opera these are some of the things i love about thais ensemble singing there is real some real ensemble singing here and this is one of the things i miss so much in wagner Um, this is in the scene that follows the big aria that we just heard uh, here, Anatayel asks his friend Nisias about Thais, and he is told that she, Thais, is Nisias's present mistress and that she will be coming to his house that very night. How fortunate. In a wonderful quartet, Nisias' slave girls try to do a kind of a makeover on Anatayel because he looks so wild and woolly and he's not presentable in good hive. fashion class society. uh, So they try to dress him up. When they do this dress-up thing, it's a marvelous quartet. So let's listen to this next little sample of the quartet, part of the quartet.
1: So,
3: what? So,
2: Okay, let's see. Oh, Act 2 the great stuff in Act Two. This brings us, Act Two brings us to the crown jewel of Arias in this opera. This is, a, again, an important use of this technique of thematic recall because it effectively links the original vision of Thais and her beauty with this new vision of Thais and her fading beauty. So, you see, there's a kind of a dramatic connection that the composer's trying to make. Um, So, let's listen to some of this aria. I can't play you the whole thing, it's too long, but some of this. And this is Renee Fleming, of course. Perhaps that this aria looked too traditional, that is, too much like an independent musical number, Massonet took great pains to keep the orchestra going at the very end after the soprano sings her final high D, as if to say to the audience, don't you dare applaud here. But this carefully constructed Wagnerian continuation of the orchestra has proven over the years to have been all for naught because audiences always applaud. And in fact, the conductors specifically allow the applause. They encourage it by stopping the orchestra. So let's listen to the very end, and I'll show you what I mean. Now, this aria is followed by a duet in which Anatayel tries to talk the courtesan, Thais, into accepting God and abandoning her wicked lifestyle. As soon as he mentions the possibility of eternal life, Thais seems to be won over. Apparently, she doesn't quite understand what eternal life means in religious terms. <laughs> but then her current lover, Nicias, is heard from offstage, again Off stage music, and she begins to waver in her commitment to God. This scene ends with Thais on the fence, pulled in two directions at the same time. Uh, this, then, is why Massenet probably composed the famous piece that comes next, which is the meditation scene, the long violin solo, sumptuously beautiful, which represents, I think, her conversion. Uh, that is, during this violin solo, she has to decide which side of the fence to come down on, and so she needs time to think. So while she's thinking, we get this gorgeous violin solo. so gorgeous. And he plays it so beautifully. I hope you you hear it tonight. That music, I think what the composer is trying to suggest is a kind of a sweet acceptance of God on the part of Thais with that tune. Okay, but again, this is not a Wagnerian leitmotif because that tune is never developed into a big symphonic texture. It never becomes the material for a large section. It's just a tune that you hear over and over again. Um, okay, in the next scene, Thais comes to Tael with her decision to follow him to the convent, so she made the right decision, uh, where she's going to live out her days in the service to God. Uh, this scene includes another aria for Thais, which is about a statue of Eros, the Roman god of love, that she has and wants to take with her to the convent. This big solo looks even more like a real old-fashioned aria than did the Mirror Song before it. Um, and this is mostly because Massinet does not allow the music to come to a stop at the end, nor does the conductor allow the music to come to a stop. Uh, Massinet uh, here actually puts a fermata into the orchestra spot at a particular moment. Well, I'll show you when we get to it. It's too hard to explain. Um, anyway, so unlike the Mirror song, uh, Massonet does not keep the orchestra going um, here. He actually ends the orchestra. Let's watch this and you'll see what I'm talking about. At the end of this aria there is actually a pause in the orchestra part which invites the applause right there and there's no applause okay. so again that's one of those things where the audience got fooled that was definitely a pause wait for the applause no applause can't wait to see what happens tonight I want to see how confused the audience is tonight about all this Now, there follows next one of the most traditional French elements in this opera, and that's the requisite ballet. Ever since the earliest French operas of Lully, way back in the 17th century, French composers have always included ballets in their operas. It was just absolutely de rigueur. Ever since the days of King Louis XIV, who liked to dance in these ballets. Um, So French composers put these things in here because it's an obligation. And the ballet remained an important part of French opera all the way through the 19th century. These dance scenes were often referred to with the French term divertissement, which literally means the diversion. And they are a moment in the drama usually when characters on stage demand entertainment for themselves. And you can partake in the entertainment if you want also. But it's not intended for you, it's intended for the characters on stage. All right, that's an important thing to remember. So here in this scene, Nicias has just come back from the gambling house where he's won a fortune, and he's all happy. Um, he's rich again, and he wants to celebrate. So the celebration takes the form of a ballet for, his, for him and his friends, dancing and singing, et cetera, et cetera. Nowadays, we realize how artificial all these ballet things are, and more importantly, how irrelevant they are to the plot line uh, how they interrupt everything. So in most modern productions of French operas, the ballets are always cut. And in this Met production, the full ballet is completely cut. The only thing left of the divertissement is the famous dance of the enchantress, who is like looks like a belly dancer. Uh, this character both dances and sings. The problem is, it's hard to find someone who can dance and sing, and so what they usually do is have her dance And then somewhere else, some other woman is doing the singing. Doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but watch this scene. This is a great illustration of the divertissement in traditional French opera. Wagner would cringe if he saw this.
3: We'll do it
2: Supposed to be the dancer singing. I have no idea who she is <laughs> or where she came from. Okay. Um, this is where Anatyal has escorted Thais to be uh, in the convent. Um, this is an extended duet between the two of them in which Thais is exhausted from her long hot walk in the desert. She collapses, and Anna Teil first notices her feet are bleeding, so they stop. Um, here, Massonet gives up all pretense of being a follower of Wagner and allows the baritone and the soprano to actually sing together in a real duet. It's one of the loveliest moments in, in, in the opera. Um, this is probably the point in the opera at which Anna Teil begins to realize that he's in love with Thais despite himself. So let's listen to a little bit of this wonderful duet. Oh, yes. I forgot. Recognize that tune? this and go to the next little excerpt, um, which is just a couple of minutes further. I'm going to try to save some time here. Together, Massenet was generally known uh, to opera lovers of the late 19th century as a composer who was fixated on heroines who had split personalities, a combination of sensuality and asceticism, um, worldly and seductive on the one hand, and at the same time religiously simple on the other hand. His colleague Vincent Dandee referred to this, uh, this kind of heroine with what he called a he called it the pseudo-religious eroticism of these characters, which I think is a wonderful way to describe what Massonet is all about. And indeed the idea of the reformed courtesan has been popular in French literature since Alexandre Dumas wrote La Damo Camellia and Verdi said it as La Traviata, same thing. Stop for a moment and think of all the parallels between that opera and Massonet's Thais, the courtesan who struggles with the attractions of two different worlds, is transformed by the goodness of one man, and then dies at the end. Um, among Massinet's gallery of such feminine portraits, we have heroines like Herodias, and of course Manon, in addition to Thais. In fact, Herodias was turned down by the Paris Opera in 1879 because of the biblical-slash-amorous nature of its heroine. And Massenet's heroines are, generally speaking, vain, self-centered beauties, Whose capacity for goodness is eventually drawn out of them by some good man. Um, there must be something appealing about operas based on such female characters, because these are the operas of Massenet that have remained in the repertoire for all these years, and I hope will continue to remain. Thank you
0: very much. Thank
3: you.
0: That was Jeffrey Langford giving a pre-performance lecture on Massenet's Thais. To keep up to date on all things opera, be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platforms. We'll be back next week for a very special episode on Verdi's Requiem. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.